The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 28th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mount to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. May be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. It is, as I said, on the church calendar, Holy Trinity Sunday, and I know you will find this as exciting as I do. This is the only Sunday in the church year dedicated not to an event or to a person, but to a doctrine. <laughs> that being the Christian doctrine of the Holy Trinity, that being the doctrine which asserts that God is one God. We do not believe in more than one God. We believe in only one God. But we believe simultaneously that in order to talk about that one and only God, the way the Bible does talk about God, you need to say not one, but three things. You need to say God the Father. You need to say God the Son. And you need to say God the Spirit. That word Trinity is not found in the Bible. It uh, rather is a word that was created by Christians who read their Bibles and then reflected on the fact that in their Bibles they noticed things like this. They noticed that in that story Dave read first, at the beginning of the Bible it says that in the beginning God created everything. But as God did so, they read too that the wind of God blew and they knew their Hebrew and also their Greek and they knew that in both Hebrew and Greek the word for wind is also the word for spirit. And then they also noticed that back there in the beginning it says that God's method of creating was to speak a word, a creating word each day and they put that together with later John at the beginning of his gospel saying that Jesus was that word of God present at creation but then later present in John's words as the word become flesh. And they also noticed, for example, that later in John, Thomas said to Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says to us, Thomas, for crying out loud, how much clearer can I be to see me is to see the Father. And then later they noticed that in John's Gospel, Jesus said to his disciples, I will no longer be with you. I will return to the Father to prepare, prepare a place for you. But nevertheless, I will be with you, for I will send my Spirit to be with you all the time and everywhere. They noticed the end of Matthew's Gospel that I just read, where Jesus says, Go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They noticed the end of 2 Corinthians, our second reading for today, written 30, so 30 years or so before Matthew's Gospel. I mean, this was written like within a couple decades of Jesus' death. That's how early this belief is. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, be with you all. We say it so often that I nearly said, and also with you, as Dave was reading. And so, reading all of that and more, early Christians created a word. 
a word not found in the Bible, but a word that was intended to be a word they could use to refer succinctly to all that stuff that is found in the Bible, that word being the word Trinity, a smash-up of triunity, trinity, to refer to three things which are distinct things, unique things, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but which are yet simultaneously one thing, one God. Humanly speaking, of course, logically speaking, it makes pretty much no sense at all to me. Which, as it turns out, is something I think uh, the doctrine kind of has going for it. Because uh, in the sense that I think if we have a doctrine intending to encompass the entire godness of God, and, and this is a doctrine that we understand, well, that doctrine is about a lot of things, but it's not about the full godness of God, which surely by definition is something we can't understand. A few years ago, and I mentioned this at the time, but I think it's aged well enough that I want to mention again here on, on Trinity Sunday. A few years ago, I read a short book by an Italian theoretical physicist named Carlo Rovelli, who wrote, and by the way, this is going to give me, in a way, kind of an intriguing other way to think about the Trinity, but that said, if you are, if you are already starting to get a headache um, because at the mention of the words theoretical physicist, you, you, um, you are welcome to spend to just tune out, and I'm going to invite you, instead of listening to Carlo Rovelli, to ponder, for example, the Rarados, the wall back here, which also will allow you to reflect on the Trinity, not with science and physics, but with art. I'll call you back when we're done. <laughs> so for those of you who are still here, Carlo Rovelli taught me that when it comes to things that we think of as things, today's physicists don't think of things as things but rather as events which come into existence and appear to us as things when the tiniest things there are, particles called things like electrons and quarks and other things for example, when they come into relationship with each other and interact with each other. And so this pulpit, for example, physicists would apparently say is not this inert thing, but is rather at its deepest level bustling with activity that we can't even see as these different particles interact with each other to form the elements which form the compounds, which form the wood, which form the thing we now call a thing called a pulpit. Quantum physicists have a formula which explains those particle level relationships. They just don't completely understand how and why this formula actually works. They just know that it does. This pulpit, this solid thing, though standing still, is in fact not an inert thing, but an infinite amount of events which, in relationship infinitely, form this thing called a pulpit. What's more, even those basic principles, those particles themselves, physicists say, particles like electrons, for example, don't actually, he wrote, even exist in the sense of existence as we generally conceive of it. Those particles exist rather and in some way exist only when they are in a relationship. A relationship created and defined by the event or happening of an electron jumping from one orbit into the next in what is called a quantum jump. I read that and thought to myself what I am wont to think quite often. I thought to myself, that'll preach. And it, it preaches really well on Trinity Sunday. As it gets me thinking how fun it is, really how, 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 how theologically nerdy perfect it is to think that the creator of a universe, 
which exists only in relationship, is a God, the fullness of whose Godness exists as a relationship. A formula for which theologians, like physicists, have a formula. One plus one plus one equals one, which equals three, which equals one. We, of course, like physicists, don't completely understand how our formula actually works. We just know that it does work. And the way it works is by the way it rhymes with the words of Scripture. Okay. Everybody home? Uh, bad news though, we're still going to talk a little bit of silence, science, but no, no more quantum physics. Um, I'm going to turn, I, I, I did text her the other day and they said you're going to preach that sermon or that sermon and you know, sorry, I'm going to preach them both. So one sermon's done now, okay? Uh, and then here's the other one. And that's going to be by looking at that first reading uh, which says that in the beginning, when God began doing God's creating, the earth was a formless void. By the way, of all the Hebrew which I was taught and forgot, I somehow still remember that formless void was tovu vavohu. I do not know why and I know this. It says that, there was a, that God began doing as God's creating. The earth was a formless void over which blew, over which blew the wind, the spirit of God, and into which was spoken the word of God, let there be light. And there was light. And as there was, there was birthed the beginning of everything which would become and is becoming still everything there is. On the back of my pickup, I have a Jesus fish. You have seen them. Um, there are three of them on the wall behind the altar. Some of you were pondering this earlier. And there's an outside one fun functioning as our bike rack, the Jesus fish. Um, the, it's explained in a sign beside the bike rack if you want to know more, but it's one of the oldest Christian symbols there is. But adjacent to that Jesus fish on the back of my pickup, I also have a reptile which looks like the Jesus fish, except it has legs, and instead of saying Jesus, it says Darwin. I understand that the back of my pickup may confuse the daylights out of a few people who are behind me um, at a stoplight on occasion, I, but I'd like to hope that maybe there are some who aren't confused, maybe even there are some who see the back of my pickup and, and, and hear good news being shared with them. That being the news that whoever said you have to choose between faith and science was, in my opinion, either a preacher who didn't understand the nature of the truth-telling science strives to do, or a scientist who didn't understand the nature of the truth-telling that faith strives to do. Faith is inherently not the enemy of science. It's a different thing than science. Science is not inherently the enemy of faith, it's a different thing than faith. Nowhere does that relationship, in my opinion, get more unnecessarily convoluted than when believers, for example, read what Dave just read to us, Genesis 1, convinced that this is a science book, it's also a history book, and it's not just true, it is literally so. And so after doing some math, they tell you that the truth is that the universe was created in six 24-hour days and is now somewhere between, because there's a few things between the lines, it's somewhere between six and 12,000 years old. I had a gentleman tell me if I didn't believe that, I was going to hell. Literally. No shortage of mainstream scientists then, citing their evidence that the universe is billions of years old, roll their eyes. 
I have Jesus and Darwin on the back of my pickup by way of saying that I don't think you need to choose between God and Darwin. I don't need to think you need to choose between your Bible and your science book. I don't think you need to choose between faith and science because they don't need to be enemies. And when they are, at their, both at their very best, they can actually hang out and get along with each other, respect each other. I don't read Genesis 1 as though it were a science book. I read science books when I want to learn science. But that said, and this is, not a faith, this is not a science statement, it's a faith statement. I think the greatest scientist there is, is God. Which means that every, every, every new and even startling thing that science learns, if it's true, and it, science learns this and teaches this, this is not a threat to my belief in God, but rather every single new thing is a deepening of my appreciation of the awesomeness of this creator God. Science does not give me my faith. That is not the job of science. And the Bible does not give me my science. That is not the job of my Bible. But I have a powerfully, joyfully fun time sometimes seeing, or at least playing with, the ways in which my belief that, that, that science in faith, in my world anyway, um, they can be wonderful dance partners. So I read in my Bible, in the beginning, God. And the dance in my head that begins then is the delightful dance of science, seeking ever to understand how all things came into being, and faith saying that however science says it came into being, nothing came into being by accident. And we dance with that. And then I read in Genesis 1 that whatever existed before everything existed was a formless void. And then, coincidentally, I turn on an episode of Science Friday where Ira Flato is doing a thing on black holes about which I understand virtually nothing at all. But in my heart and mind, formless voids and black holes start dancing. Just a wonderful dance. I can almost hear the music. And then over the void, says Genesis, the Spirit of God blows and into the void the Word of God speaks and what it says to the dark void is let there be light. And then in my imagination, the dancers continuing to dance, I imagine the dark void in that moment inhaling then to exhale, contracting then to expand and doing so with a big bang. That said, though I think that science properly understood and properly understanding itself is not faith's enemy, and though the two in my mind can dance some wonderful dances, the primary language of the faith is not, in my mind, the language of science. Rather, in my mind, and this is really interesting to me on this Trinity Sunday, it occurs to me, at least this is occurs to me today, it may be different tomorrow, but it occurs to me that the primary language of faith is Trinitarian. Faith's primary language being the language of story plus poetry plus in all of its forms the arts of praise. I think of Jesus all the times so he wanted to say the deepest things he could say about God and the ways of God. What would he say? He would say, let me tell you a story. I think of our first reading for today, not as a seven-chapter-long science book about how exactly and, and, and when exactly the beginning of it all, the beginning of us, took place. I think of it rather as a seven-stanza-long poem 
in praise of the creator of all and of us. Science and faith, not the same thing, but rather, in my mind, wonderful dance partners, but they remain different things. Sometimes even requiring that the dances they need to dance need to be danced to some music that is dissonant sounding. And in dancing that dance, they remind us that dissonance actually can be a very beautiful thing. But science and faith aren't the same thing, for the primary language of science is the language of science. Well, the primary language of faith, I do want to suggest on this Trinity Sunday, is the language of story, plus poetry, plus, in all of its various forms, the arts of praise. My colleagues may enjoy the fact that I'm going to end speaking of poetry and praise with these words from Mary Oliver. Reflecting on creation, and faith with the language of faith. I don't know where prayers go for what they do. Do cats pray while they sleep, half asleep in the sun? Does the opossum pray as it crosses the street? The sunflowers, the old black oak growing older every year? Is prayer a gift or a petition or does it matter? The sunflowers blaze, maybe that's just their way. Maybe the cats are sound asleep, maybe not. While I was thinking this, I happened to be standing just outside my door with my notebook open, which is the way I begin every morning. Then a wren, wren began to sing. He was positively drenched in enthusiasm. I don't know why. And yet, why not? I wouldn't persuade you from whatever you believe or whatever you don't. That's your business. But I thought of the wren's singing. What could this be if it isn't a prayer? So I listened, my pen in the air. <laughs>